What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Is life a heroic journey? Is it true that to be truly heroic you have to be selfish? Is it true that to make a dent in the universe you have to believe in yourself, nobody else? Listen to your own gut, nobody else's. Great heroes do not listen to others. They make their own mistakes and triumphs, and that makes them heroic. Ayn Rand wanted individuals to put themselves before others, arguing that selfishness was a good motivator for us to become creative and productive. She rejected altruism, religion, and collectivism. For her, the only value we have in this world is what you can offer to others. If you have nothing to offer except your moral virtue, you have nothing to exchange with others. Her philosophy is a combination of Aristotelian teleological purpose and Adam Smith's value exchange. For instance, when a man and a woman meet, they look for values to extract from the other. Without any values, no relationships work. Just like a market transaction only happens when both parties get value out of it. There is no altruism, it's pure self-interest. So today I'll tell you all about Ayn Rand, her life, her writing, fiction and non-fiction, and finally what philosophical secrets we can learn from her. So get yourself some coffee and let's talk rationality, selfishness and creativity. Life Ayn Rand was born in Russia in 1905 as Alisa Zineyevna Rosenbaum into a wealthy Jewish family. Her father ran a pharmacy in St. Petersburg, but it was confiscated after the Bolshevik October Revolution of 1917. Tavarish, we don't believe in private property. Now I know why Rand was fiercely against socialism. The family fled to Crimea for a period of time, but Rand herself returned to St. Petersburg, which was now named Petrograd. Age 16, she enrolled at the University of Petrograd to study history. By the time she graduated in 1924, the city was changed to Leningrad after the death of Vladimir Lenin the same year. Perhaps that gave Rand the idea of changing her professional name to Ayn Rand. If a city can change its name, why not her? This name change also coincided with her desire to leave the country. In 1926, when she was 21, she moved to the United States to become a screenwriter. She moved to Hollywood. Where else? She did some acting as an extra and wrote some screenplays, but nothing was really working and her visa was running out. So in 1929, she married Frank O'Connor, another extra, and two years later she became an American citizen and never returned to Russia. 
Despite living in America most of her life, she spoke in a very distinct, thick Russian accent. O'Connor, her husband, quit acting and became a rancher to financially support Rand and her writing career. But later on, he became an artist himself. In 1932, she sold her first screenplay, Red Pawn, a spy thriller set on a prison island in Russia about a woman who is trying to free her husband from prison. But it was never produced. She got the money, so who cares? Two years later, her courtroom drama Night of January 16th was staged in Hollywood and then on Broadway. Ayn Rand's first novel, We the Living, set in post-revolution Russia, came out in 1936, telling the story of a rebellious young woman fighting in two fronts, against her family as well as the new Soviet state. She continued her attack against Soviet totalitarianism with her next novella, Anthem, in 1938 a dystopian novel about a future dark age. It is somewhat similar to the 1921 novel We by Yevgeny Zemyatin, which according to many inspired both Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984. So her first few stories were all about the danger of totalitarianism. It was as though she had escaped from a nightmare in Russia, but the trauma was still fresh for her. In 1943, Rand published The Fountainhead, which made her very successful and famous. The novel is about a resolute architect who fights against established conventions, collectivism and stagnation. Rand depicts individualism being superior to collectivism, rebellion superior to conformity, and innovation superior to conventionality. With her new fame and financial success, Rand was able to move to New York in 1951 where she gathered like-minded people in her apartment to develop her philosophical ideas as well as her literary style. As a result of working closely with these intelligent people, she wrote her most famous novel, Atlas Shrugged, which came out in 1957. In Atlas Shrugged, Rand introduces us to her core philosophy of objectivism. It tells the story of a dystopian future in which the welfare state has cushioned the people so much that creativity and productivity are no longer valued, and even have stagnated in the United States. As a result, all the creative minds have taken refuge in a secret valley, not to be confused with the Silicon Valley, where they have set up their own state based on free market economy that incentivizes productivity and creativity. The novel's main premise is based on the idea known as 80-20, in which 20% of a country's population creates 80% of wealth or innovation. This is considered to be true within a company and country. So by leaving the country, the creative minds have brain-trained the economy, so to speak, a common issue today in the developing world, where the brightest young people move to the first world countries for better job opportunities. The novel is a critique of the welfare state for making people less hard workers. But critics on the left have criticized novel for promoting selfishness and some even blame the book for the banking crisis of 2008, in which the bankers gambled on other people's money for their own selfish gains. The novel made Ayn Rand into a philosopher and soon she founded The Objectivist, a philosophical newsletter. She also became a lecturer at the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, headed by a man of the same name who also supposedly had affairs with Rand. 
Ironically, Rand, as a teacher, was extremely strict with his, her students and demanded uncompromising conformity from them, which went against her own philosophy of non-conformity. Criticizing her or disagreeing with her made her extremely angry. In some way, that is the story of every organization, institution, revolutionary state, or individual who gains power and authority. In Animal Farm, George Orwell allegorizes this how before the revolution the Russian Bolsheviks promised freedom from Tsar's tyranny, but after taking over they become Tsar themselves. Of course, Ayn Rand's flippant anger is not comparable to revolutionary atrocities, but it just shows that human nature is always undefeated. No matter how much you believe in total freedom, when you have to run an organization, institution or state or even manage a classroom, you really want a bit of tyranny to control others. This is me talking as a YouTuber who wants all the comments to on how much they love me, not criticize me. So I can relate to Ayn Rand about non-agreeable people out there. Of course I'm joking, I always welcome valid criticism. Outside writing, she was also politically active with the US Republican Party. Her fierce anti-communism and in favor of free market capitalism made her a darling of the right and conservatism. Later in life, she supported the right to abortion, opposed the Vietnam War, and supported Israelis' war against what she termed as Arab savages. She had many unpopular opinions, including one against homosexuality as well as justifying European colonialism saying that if the table was turned, the colonized would have done the same thing. She was fiercely against the welfare state, calling those on welfare as lazy. But later in life she allowed herself to get social security as well as Medicare. She died in 1982, age 77. Today she is known as a great novelist as well as a philosopher who still divides opinion. Her style of romantic realism promoted individualistic heroes who went against the grain, opposed conformity, conventional morality, or even duty, in the same vein as Nietzsche's Ubermensch. In other words, Rand wants a world in which heroes push boundaries in order to create new things. She wanted progress through the heroic deeds of individuals, not the collective. For her, collectivism stifled creativity, while individualism promoted hard work and productivity. Her style of writing also promotes competition among men, as her female characters are always entangled with two or more men, suggesting that a woman's ultimate goal is to see which male character wins and then she chooses him as her mate. This closely resembles nature in which male animals compete physically in order to mate with the female. She was also influenced by writers such as Victor Hugo, calling him the greatest novelist in the world, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the German romantic poet Friedrich Schiller. For her, romanticism as a movement best captured the heroic mentality of humans, the daring, courageous act of going against the grain and challenging the conventional wisdom of a group. Romanticism started in 18th century in Europe as a direct response to the scientific revolution and the age of reason that promoted a more one-sided rationality at the expense of natural passion. For Rand, romanticism allowed humans to dare, or the free will to do heroic deeds. Since she spent a few formative years in Hollywood, her style of writing is also more plot-driven, in which the camera pans from wide angle to focused close-up shot. For Rand, storytelling was the best medium to express philosophical ideas because literature emphasizes context and concrete scenarios. 
that can help philosophical ideas to be more grounded in objective reality and concrete human interactions, not some abstract scenarios. She considered literature to be the best medium of expressing philosophical concept as it provides context for such concepts. Literature is a perfect stage on which philosophers can discuss their ideas. She received criticisms from both religious people for her atheism as well as philosophical establishments for her philosophical egoism. I personally think the emphasis on rationality is the only truth goes against the romanticist emphasis on human passion. I think we are more driven through passion than reason. Reason might give us a clear picture of reality but it hardly ever motivates us to do things that might be unreasonable or deeply heroic and innovative. She championed productivity and creativity, but without passion, neither of those can be achieved. Reason alone is not enough. While she claimed that her greatest philosophical influence was Aristotle, it doesn't take a genius to see that a lot of similarity with Nietzsche. Her idea of an individual going against the whole society is very much Nietzschean Ubermensch. Also Nietzsche embodied the Romanticist movement in philosophy. What's different about Rand and Nietzsche is that Rand only allows rationality while Nietzsche's entire philosophy is a critique of rationality. Nietzsche wanted humans to return to its passionate past that allowed artistic flourishing. Nietzsche saw too much rationality stifling creativity in the same way that religious morality stifled expression. At the heart of rational philosophy is conformity that everyone is the same and everyone is rational. Anyone different, therefore, should align himself or herself with others. Ayn Rand's books have sold more than 37 million copies. Not surprisingly, her popularity has remained limited to the US because her philosophy of making it all by yourself through hard work and grit, a very individualistic philosophy, is the cornerstone of the American dream. So people could resonate with her writing. After her arrival in the US, she was part of the Hollywood world and later became a TV celebrity, which helped her to become a household name. Some of her novels, including The Fountainhead and Anthem, are taught in American schools as well as in the UK. Now I'll discuss her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. The Fountainhead Published in 1943, The Fountainhead was Ayn Rand's first major success. More than 6 million copies sold and translated into 20 languages. It tells the story of an intelligent young architect named Howard Rourke, who's somewhat similar to someone like Steve Jobs, who goes against the grain in established convention in order to innovate. Of course, Steve Jobs became the establishment himself, and that's how human society works. You break the old and create the new until you become the old and someone else comes along and breaks down what you created and builds something newer. This is evolutionary biology 101 applied to social change. So the underlying philosophy is that we are ultimately alone and an ideal man's job is to pursue his goal of achieving something and nobody except himself can help him. So you can see that Ayn Rand was writing against socialism which was dominating the eastern part of Europe in the 1940s when the novel was published. And National Socialism of Hitler was dominating the central part of Europe. Only America and some Western European nations were carrying the free market capitalism torch. 
The protagonist Rourke roars like a lion against those who conform and sees them as second-handers who rely on the creativity and productivity of someone like him. A good analogy would be a lion that kills a prey and a bunch of lazy scavenging hyenas eat the meat. These lazy people include Peter Keating, a fellow architect, Ellsworth Tuhey, a socialist critic, Gail Wynand, a tabloid publisher, and most importantly, Dominic Francon, his girlfriend who moves like a pendulum between collectivism and individualism. We are in 1922, the Jazz Age, the Roaring Twenties, when the great Gatsby was having lavish parties in his New York mansion. The young architect student, Howard Rourke, finds himself expelled from university for not following architectural conventions. He heads to New York and gets himself a job with a famous architect named Henry Cameron. Life is okay, but things change when one of his former classmates, Peter Keating, who wasn't very bright and whom he helped with his homework, graduates with a degree and gets a job at a more prestigious company. Peter, a mediocre student at best, but socially cunning, quickly moves up the career ladder and becomes a partner. This is so unfair. Howard, the real genius, is still toiling at a struggling company. But things get worse. The company collapses when the owner dies and to add salt to injury, Peter hires Howard. But wait, he's soon fired by Cameron, Peter's partner, for refusing to design a building in the convention style. Things go from bad to worse. He gets odd jobs here and there and even opens his own company but finds no client. At his lowest, he finds a job at a quarry owned by Cameron, Peter's business partner. But wait a minute. Here, Howard meets a young female journalist, Dominic, who is incidentally Cameron's daughter. There's love at first sight, but it's not all rosy. Their first sexual experience is pretty rough and animalistic, which according to her is non-consensual. It doesn't end there. Later, when Howard returns to New York to work on a building project, Dominic attacks his work in her newspaper column, but at the same time secretly comes to him from some rough sex from time to time. While she enjoys the rough sex in secret, in public she talks shit about him to her colleagues. One of her newspaper colleagues, Ellsworth Tuhey, a socialist, uses his media influence to destroy Howard's reputation by setting him up to design a building. A wealthy man commissions Howard to design a temple. We know Howard. He is not a conventional man. He designs a nude statue of Dominic in the temple, which the socialist journalist uses to persuade the owner to sue the architect for malpractice. They go to court and all the journalists testify against Howard. As expected, the rebel architect loses the case. Not only that, he also loses the woman. Now to add salt to injury, Dominic, his sneaky link, not only abandons him, but also marries his fiercest rival, Peter Keating. Not only that, she does everything to support her man and she even cheats on him with clients in order to get him more clients. In other words, she wants her husband financially well off, even if it means sleeping with other men. You gotta be kidding me. Ayn Rand shows that women only love you when you have something going for yourself. A defeated man gets no sympathy from women. This is Nature 101. Male animals fight and the winner gets to mate. And the loser? Well, our rebellious architect Howard continues with his work in the shadow of his mediocre classmate Peter Keating. 
But here's a twist, perhaps a bit far-fetched. But let me tell you, Dominic, while married to Keating, has an affair with her boss at the newspaper, Gail Wynant. Why? Because he's looking for an architect and she wants him to hire her husband for the job. But the twist that seems unbelievable is that the boss, Gail Wynand, falls in love with Dominic and pays her husband Keating a huge sum of money to divorce her so she can marry her. Ayn Rand's female character is not an independent thinker. She hops from winner to winner like a bunny or a monkey from branch to branch for a better man. She marries her newspaper boss. Her new husband, Gail Wynand, is still searching for an architect. It turns out all his favorite buildings are designed by one man. Who could it be? After a quick search, we find out that it's none other than our protagonist, the anti-establishment Howard. Now we come full circle. Now we enter a phase that is called the redemption period in a hero's journey. Gail Wynan befriends Howard, hoping to get him to design a house for him and his wife Dominic. Unaware that in the past she used the same man for some wild rough sex from time to time. Not only Dominic used Howard for some raw sex, the other architect, Peter Keating, also used the rebel man in most of his successful design projects. In other words, our unconventional hero is not only an animal in bed, he is also a brilliant architect. But as things look up for him, Ayn Rand throws a spanner in the works. While designing a building with his former classmate Peter Keating, Howard makes him promise not to change his design. But when the building is complete, it looks nothing like what he had designed. Our hero is outraged. He takes matter into his own hand and burns the building. He's arrested and put on trial. Everyone condemns the man except his new friend Gail Wynant, who defends him in his newspaper at a huge cost to his business. People cancel his newspaper and his staff go on strike. Dave Chappelle and Netflix all over here. But when the pressure mounts, the boss caves in and apologizes to his staff and condemns his new friend Howard. This 180 degree change of mind is going to be costly, at least in the bedroom. Women like men with a backbone. Only one man has a backbone in the novel and that's Howard who is sitting pretty in jail awaiting trial. At the trial, he defends his stance that a man must have integrity because without it, he's nothing else. Much to everyone's surprise, he's found not guilty. Our hero is redeemed. Guess what? Do you remember Dominic who was married to Peter Keating, then married Gail Wynant? She jumps ship for the third time. Now Dominic and Howard are together. Not only that, Gail Wynant understands that a man needs a backbone, so to redeem himself, he commissions Howard to build a huge skyscraper in New York. At the end, one of the most symbolic scenes is when Dominic climbs up the new building to be with, you guessed it, the winner, Howard. They walk into the sunset together. Well, you cannot walk into the sunset from the top of a skyscraper unless you're insane. But you get the point. Now I'll discuss some of the themes of Fountainhead. Ideal man. So for Ayn Rand, an ideal man is someone who goes against the grain in social conventions in pursuit of excellence, not conformity. A new alpha male not only has to fight others in social conventions, but also has to be a brilliant mind. That's what women are attracted to. 
According to Rand, women generally do not want mediocre men without a backbone, integrity, and independent thoughts. Men who flip-flop and quickly bend to the will of others are not to be trusted. In other words, Peter Keating and Gail Wynand chased money and social validation, and they ultimately lost as a result. If the prize for men is to win the heart of a woman, he must have a goal and stick to it. Peter Keating was a tree climber who used his cunning mind to reach the top without doing the work, always tried to please others, and never swam against the current. The fact that Howard had to fight others in school, workplace, and even in his romantic pursuit meant that he was robust and didn't give a nest to what others thought of it. He only listened to his own inner voice. That independent thinking combined with a brilliant vision allowed him to change his world based on how he saw things. So a visionary man coupled with a strong will can create a new empire, state, building in New York. How about an ideal woman? Well, the novel has one major female character, Dominic, who has her own inner conflict. While she enjoys intimacy with Howard, a man who doesn't give an S to anyone, but at the same time she is a practical woman who is seeking a secure and comfortable nest so she can lay her eggs. She wants to be with Howard, but not at all cost. For Ayn Rand, her female character is a woman who wants to be with a strong man who is also a winner. The fact that she jumped between three men showed that she mostly followed her pragmatic head. When Keating was winning by climbing the career ladder, she married him, but he lacked individuality. And when Gail Wynan was winning as a wealthy newspaper owner who had come from nothing, she was with him. But he lost his backbone as he only wanted power and nothing else. And finally, when Howard was redeemed, she came to him because he was neither seeking power nor social acceptance. He was a genius who didn't give a nest to anything but ingenuity and innovation. Only Howard had her heart and her head. The other two men were simply means to an end for her. So female mating strategy is to be with someone who is capable of changing society and respected by others and secure enough to have a nice nest where their kids can grow in safety and comfort. Of course, feminists would have a serious problem with Ayn Rand and especially with her female character Dominic, who instead of changing the world herself as an empowered woman, always aligned herself with the strong men. The scene of rough sex between Dominic and Howard specifically has been called a clear case of rape, and some feminists called Rand as a self-hating woman. Rand argues that Dominic had invited Howard and she ultimately went back to him despite that difficult scene. By the end of the novel, she chose him. Individualism versus Collectivism Rand also takes a huge swipe at socialism through the character of the newspaper journalist Ellsworth Tuhey, who uses all kinds of weapons including deception to destroy people's self-worth and sense of individual autonomy because he sees the world through the lens of class, not individual. His main philosophy is selflessness, altruism and equality, therefore he condemns anyone promoting selfishness or individual pursuits. Ayn Rand's choice of architecture is perhaps a symbolic swipe at socialism that ultimately we all want to live in our own house, not in some commune where we share a big building with lots of people. Animals defend their caves and territories with their lives, 
and humans are no different. Our evolutionary goal is to work hard and build a nest where our kids can grow and do the same. We are not like ants or insect colonies that we all work for others. Our natural tendencies are individualistic and selfish. And Rand says not only there is nothing wrong with being selfish, but also argues that being selfish brings the best out of us. When you work for others, you have no motivation to do your best. We find meaning by working for our own goals set by ourselves, not goals set by the state. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Or our parents. People in the past were forced to live together, but as technology has improved, our architecture has allowed us to be more individualistic. This aligns with what we innately want. Kids, we want a room of our own. When you grow up, a house of our own. The novel, despite being criticized by the left and feminists, has been extremely successful around the world. Not only has it inspired many architects and writers, it has also been adopted to films and television many times. Atlas Shrugged Published in 1957, some 15 years after The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged is Ayn Rand's most successful novel, selling over 9 million copies and translated into 30 languages, considered her magnum opus. Just like The Fountainhead, it too pursues philosophical themes such as individualism, rationality, and capitalism, but with a dystopian setting, similar to George Orwell's 1984. When things go south in the US, as the welfare states take over and over-regulate things to the point that businesses collapse and innovators are stifled. But in this novel, Ayn Rand further elaborates on her new philosophical school of objectivism that there is nothing but objective reality and no better tool than reason. Themes such as religion, God, altruism, collectivism and equality are nothing but pipe dreams. So the novel pits two opposing forces in the United States. On the one hand, we have the over-regulating state on the verge of collapse, and on the other hand, we have a private businesses who see their productivity is used to feed the less productive members of society through the welfare state. At the heart of the novel, we have a power couple. Not some social media one, but a real powerful couple. Dagny Taggart, a railway executive, and her lover, Hank Reardon, a steel magnate, who are both recruited by John Galt, an objectivist philosopher and a visionary, to abandon their businesses to teach the U.S. a lesson that they are the real backbone of the American economy. Ayn Rand introduces us to a really powerful woman, Dagny Taggart, perhaps to compensate for the criticism she received after the publication of her first novel, The Fountainhead, for not championing women. Dagny is a badass railway executive, competent, rational, and spirited under extreme economic crisis mostly due to tightly regulated economy and nationalization of industries. Meanwhile, Hank Reardon, a steel magnate, has similar problems with an overreach of state and interfering with business. But business is not his only problem, he has also issue at home with his wife. So Ayn Rand has set things up for Dagny and Hank, two struggling souls, to meet. They meet when Dagny opens her new railroad. The love is almost at first sight. They end up in bed together. We are animals after all. 
Forget about business or marriage or America. Let's make the most of what we have. Couple it. They find each other's company very enjoyable, so they go on holiday together. While on holiday, they stumble upon a factory with a mysterious but ingenious machine that runs on static electricity. It appears the scientist who invented the machine abandoned it for some reason, and nobody knows who that person is. The two hire an engineer to reconstruct the machine, but red tape after red tape means they have to abandon it all. The government learns about the sexual affair between Dagny and Hank, so they use it to blackmail him into compliance over his business. If you have not noticed, the government is the bad guys in this novel. Ayn Rand's heroes are business leaders. This is very unconventional in literature because normally the good guys tend to be someone from outside. It is hard to make Jeff Bezos the hero of a novel or Elon Musk, but that's precisely what Rand does in this novel. Dagny one day meets a homeless man who tells him about a man named John Galt. But who is he? It turns out he's the inventor of this new machine that runs on static electricity. Iron Rand makes some of the scenes a bit too far-fetched, but let's go with it. Dagny, while chasing one of her employees on a plane, crash lands somewhere remote. But it turns out this place is occupied by a mysterious group of people. Who are they? Amish people? No, these people are headed by none other than the engineer who invented the new yet abandoned machine, John Galt. Why are they here in this remote valley? It turns out John Galt is leading a strike of brilliant minds and creative workers against the government and its overregulation. Some are business leaders, some are artists, some are engineers. All the creative and productive minds that run the economy, so to speak. As expected, love is in the air. Ayn Rand's woman falls in love with powerful, charismatic men. Dagny is in love with John Galt, the cult leader. Maybe cult is not the right word. The philosopher or the visionary is perhaps a fairer term. John Galt asks her to join them in the strike, but she is torn between her job at the railway company and her new love. At the end, she reluctantly leaves the business hippies and returns to her work. But things have gone from bad to worse. The country has turned into a proper authoritarian state. But wait, the philosopher John Galt leaves his hippie camp and returns to New York in pursuit of the lady Dagny. While in New York, he hacks into a radio station to broadcast his communist manifesto. Oops, I meant his objectivist manifesto, in which he tells the nation that there is no other reality but objective reality. And no force is more powerful than rationality, and no goal is more virtuous than pursuit of our self-interest, and so on. After talking for three hours on the radio, he leaves. But before he reunites with his lover Dagny or returns to his capitalist hippie camp, he's arrested by New York Police Department. The government first tries to recruit him to restore the country, but he refuses. Then they waterboard him a few times. Okay, but they do torture him a bit, and soon enough the whole system crumbles and all the workers unite. I'm joking. When the government collapses, those on strike return to the city to reclaim their government. The novel ends when the new people are in charge, so you could read it as a capitalist fiction. At the heart of this novel is this question: What if instead of workers going on a strike? The business leaders, prime engineers, the creative minds went on strike.
So Ayn Rand takes a socialist premise of workers stop working and turns it on its head. What if their executives and leaders went on strike? To put it somewhat crudely, it asks what if the flock had no leader? Where would the reindeers go without their alpha females? Or what would happen to the pride without the male lion? Ayn Rand argues that human civilization only flourished when they had robust and competent leaders. By setting the novel on industries, Rand wanted to remind us that when it comes to infrastructure, it was the brilliant innovators and inventors who moved society, not the bureaucrats at the government. It is people like John Galt on the ground who invents the new machine. The title Atlas Shrugged also symbolizes that we often take for granted and do not notice or appreciate that it's Atlas, the Greek titan who holds earth on its back. The only way we appreciate something is when we lose it. It's like we don't notice garbage collectors unless they stop working for a few weeks. Then we notice that the town starts to stink. Ethical Egoism the underlying philosophy of the novel is ethical egoism, which means that since we are inherently selfish, it makes us rational about it. Not only is selfishness not a bad thing, it should be encouraged. When we realize our self-interest, we do our best to work for it, and once everyone is rationally selfish, then society operates better because we all know what other people want, so we do our best to offer value. This in turn promotes honesty, fairness, independence, and most importantly, productivity. Humans are inherently lazy and always take the path of least resistance. So if we can get away with by not doing anything, most of us would take that path. To counter that, Ayn Rand proposes selfishness as a virtue and everyone is transparent about it. Now nobody can hide behind the mask of altruism or virtue signal for something they don't really mean. In contrast, according to Rand, socialism, fascism, or any other form of collectivism or even a religious-based society would inevitably lead to some members of society being productive while some relying on others for subsistence. This is a common criticism directed at the welfare state by the right and the conservatives. The novel also refers to those in favor of higher taxes or strong government, and government bureaucrats and those surviving on welfare as looters, moochers, and parasites. Quote, so you think that money is the root of all evil? Have you asked what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange which cannot exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. So the novel rejects any form of handouts by the government. Instead, it promotes that everyone should work for what they want. In other words, the elites of society is often demonized by the media and the populace as corrupt. But the novel takes a big swipe at the government as the main agency of corruption. Of course, just like the previous novel, many critics, especially those on the left, condemned the book for a variety of reasons. One major criticism was its atheism, and others criticized it for promoting selfishness. If there's one thing you learn about Ayn Rand is that she didn't care about what people thought of her. She went against the dominant way of thinking. 
So while the novel has been extremely popular among the masses, to some extent it was pushed aside by the literary establishment. Literature in general tends to favor heroes who are outsiders, powerless and poor. Ayn Rand didn't give a ness about that and made her heroes top executives and big bosses and some brilliant engineers. She had balls. Swimming with the current is an easy thing to do, but swimming against the current is a lot harder. In fairness, she wasn't alone. The American anti-communist sentiment did help her and her career, so she was not swimming totally by herself. There were big sharks swimming by her. Now I'll discuss seven lessons we can learn from her life and her writings. Lesson 1. Selfishness is a virtue. This is one of the most controversial philosophical ideas Ayn Rand put forward. She argues that humans are inherently selfish and beating the bush only means one thing. We hide our true intentions from others which forces us to make excuses and BS that comes with it. Since we are naturally selfish, as the Darwinian evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins pointed out in his book The Selfish Gene, therefore it makes sense not to demonize it. Instead, we should accept it as a reality. Ayn Rand argues that even love is selfish. She famously said in an interview that her love for her husband was selfish because she got something out of the relationship. We don't love our partner because we are altruistic. We love them because the other person has some values or virtues that benefit us in some way. Published in 1964, The Virtue of Selfishness is a collection of philosophical essays by Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandenin, in which they put forward moral egoism as a philosophical foundation of human society. So what Ayn Rand articulated is that we all want to be happy and have a fulfilling life. And not just that, we are extremely selfish in our pursuit of happiness. By making selfishness a virtue, we become more transparent in society. And now nobody can hide behind a mask of altruism or virtue signal anymore to deceive others of their true selfish intentions. Rand's ethical egoism is centered on the idea that we should rationally seek our happiness and self-interest, not the collective interest of our tribe or group. Individuals, she says, should live for himself or herself, not sacrificing themselves for other people. Altruism promises self-sacrifice, like soldiers dying for their leaders without considering their own life's goals and happiness. We can no longer hide behind some tribal or ideological wall. But Ayn Rand argues that we cannot be selfish without also being rational. Lesson 2 Reason is the only solid doctrine. Many people characterize Ayn Rand's selfish philosophy as a recipe for chaos, as everyone wants what is best for them. Therefore, you cannot have a coherent social fabric anymore. Throughout history, most societies were created around religious doctrines or equality, altruism, superstition, etc. But Rand rejected religions and ideologies. So how do you organize a society when faith or ideology or myths no longer play a role? She offered rationality as the best foundation for a robust society. Why? Because reason is universal, while faith, whims, emotions, etc. are subjective. Rand argues that reason alone can guide us in life. 
So our perception of reality should be based purely on reason, not biological instinct or emotions, intuitions or religious revelations. You have to be rationally awake all the time. In other words, reason is the only essential tool in our disposal. So reason guides us to one optimal conclusion, to pursue your own self-interest. She argues that when we make selfishness as a virtue, everyone suddenly uses reason to further their own interests in society. If we are rational, we all know that chaos doesn't benefit you in the long run. If we think rationally, we understand that you cannot deceive people and be successful in the long term. If we just extract value from others, soon people stop giving us. So we have to be smart in providing value in return. So a rational person knows that he or she should provide value in order to gain something from someone. Even in marriage, both parties know that the other offers something they really want. She argues that egoism should not be a negative thing. Instead, once we all act to promote our own self-interest and our own happiness, not the interest of others, we are forced to be more responsible for our own actions. Lesson 3. Take responsibility for your own life, nobody else's. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is rooted in the harsh reality of life that nobody is responsible for your life but you. As adults, we are responsible for our own well-being, happiness and goals. When you are on a plane, the rule is fasten your own seatbelt first before you can help others. It's the old saying that nobody can make you happy except yourself. We make choices in life and those choices have consequences. Ayn Rand's philosophy is that we cannot claim to be victims because we are responsible for the choices we make in life. Life is an uneven path with ups and downs, struggles, trials and tribulations. Therefore, we should not rely on others to make those choices for us. As responsible, rational beings, we have to take accountability for our own choices and actions. Once we take responsibility for our own life and happiness, we become more creative and productive. So Rand's moral egoism makes us more productive as we have to provide value in order to extract value from others. Lesson 4. Happiness comes from creativity and productivity. Life's journey is a cliche, but it's true. We all want to be happy, often without doing anything. Rand argues that the true happiness we drive is through our creativity and productivity. The happiest people are also hardworking and creative people. We should drive pleasure not from indulging ourselves, but creating values to exchange with others. Ayn Rand uses Adam Smith's value exchange market capitalism as the best system that allows us to flourish by becoming competent. Adam Smith had argued centuries before in which each individual is like a shop front. You sell your products, skills, creativity and in return you buy things you need or want. In other words, equal values are exchange which promotes more productivity and more creativity. Under the free market, the right to private property is protected. 
while under communism or any other forms of collectivism, individuals have little incentive to work hard and be creative because they have no say in how their products are exchanged. This was depicted in her novel Atlas Shrugged, in which the creative and productive people go on strike that cripples the economy. So for her, an ideal man is someone who goes against the grain in his attempt to innovate and create, which should make him happy in the long run. Lesson 5. Break Boundaries Ayn Rand was a rebel. She wrote about things that were not popular. She talked about selfishness, atheism, ideal man, etc. that made her very unpopular, especially among the left. But she refused to bow to pressure because she was fiercely against conventional thinking. In her novel The Fountainhead, she attacks conformity as a kind of sheep mentality of following others and not having original ideas. Her main character breaks with conventions, norms and established order to revolutionize architecture and ultimately wins. A true hero is someone who pushes society to become better. Of course not all innovation is good. That's why Ayn Rand emphasized rationality to be the foundation of society, not faith or whim. In a rational society the winner is someone who comes up with the best idea and product not the idea that's popular or sticks to rules. So her philosophy promoted innovation and breaking with rules in order to move society forward. That's how evolution works. It throws things out and something sticks and then it moves in that direction. Innovation and creativity works in the same way. Conventions, rules, boundaries on the other hand limit creativity. Lesson 6. Life is a heroic journey. Romanticism as a movement began in Europe in the 18th century and the 19th century against the overemphasis on industries and the rational science of humanism dominating social changes. Unlike the humanists, romanticists wanted a return to nature and free human expression. While universal humanism through the industrialization and urbanization focused on conformity, predictability and safety, and romantics were more focused on creativity, honor, courage, and bravery. Ayn Rand agreed with the romantics as an artistic movement that pushed boundaries. Published in 1969, the Romantic Manifesto is a collection of philosophical essays in which Ayn Rand argues that a piece of art is inherently tied to the values and the characteristics of the artists who created it and a viewer who views it. In other words, both the artist and the viewer adds a piece of their own value in the piece of art. So art cannot be objective. The artist creates it based on his own values and the audience enjoys it based on their values. At the base of her argument, Rand asserts that one cannot create art without infusing a given work with one's own value judgments and personal philosophy. Even if the artist attempts to withhold moral overtones, the work becomes tinged with a deterministic or naturalistic message. The next logical step for Rand's argument is that the audience of any particular work cannot help but some way with some sense of philosophical message colored by his own or her own personal values, ingrained in their psyche or whatever degree of emotional impact the work holds for them. In the book, she also defends romanticism as an art as a raw and natural approach to creativity. As a result, she argues that life is meant to be a heroic journey. 
she says, quote, the concept of a man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. Lesson 7. Passion really motivates us. While Ran only saw reason as absolute, human history has shown us that that's not always the case. Humans are driven by passion more than reason. If you explain life crudely, we are here to survive and have babies. Sure, it's rational to pass on your genes to the next generation, and that's why the urge to have sex is extremely strong in us. While Ayn Rand articulates that when it comes to organizing society and how an individual navigates society, reason is our best weapon. When reason goes out of the window, problems occur. However, human passion, which often goes against rationality, is one of the biggest motivators of human behavior. We fall in love not because we are rational. We sometimes choose mates not because we use reason and logic. We fall in love, which means we give up control to passion, urges, and emotions. Our emotions and whims come and go while reason is solid. That's why we fall out of love. That's why emotions override certain decisions today, but tomorrow, when we sober up a bit, we realize how foolish we acted. Philosophers like Arthur Schopenhauer and Friedrich Nietzsche argue that human passion is not only as important as rationality, but also we cannot do without it. We are driven by the blind passion, be it in Schopenhauer's will to life, or Nietzsche's will to power, or Albert Camus' will to happiness. This is one of the major disagreements she had with Nietzsche. Nietzsche's critique of Western philosophy was centered on reason being given the primacy at the cost of reducing passion to something evil. Ayn Rand sees passion, emotions, whims as unreliable tools for social interactions. Therefore, she says reason alone is a primary mode of social interactions. However, modernity, which favors reason above else, has resulted in nihilism, the tendency towards meaninglessness on the one hand, and the pleasure-seeking self-indulgence on the other, which Rand was vehemently against. To truly motivate someone to be creative and productive, human passion, which is not rational, plays a huge role. For instance, if you want to recruit soldiers, paying them money can be a motivator, but nothing can replace the idea of making it a noble cause, or fighting for good against evil, or the idea of sacrifice, all of which are not strictly rational. The most successful empires have not used reason to unite, but used religions, myths, stories, and good and evil division to unite people and recruit soldiers to defend it. One can admire Ayn Rand's honesty in admitting that we are ultimately selfish creatures and there's no point in denying that. Today, a lot of ruthless people hide behind the mask of altruism to virtue signal certain moral outrages in society. But in reality, they are nothing but selfish people benefiting from their the fake selflessness. Ayn Rand exposes us all, saying that let's not pretend we really care about others when we all care about ourselves. But the problem is that nothing is really black and white in society. Humans are great at learning and adapting to new situations. Even if you are put in heaven, we might find ways to get out of it. Oh, hang on a minute. We have already done that according to the Bible. 
So Ayn Rand says the sooner we accept that we are selfish animals, the easier it is for us to unmask ourselves and be less hypocritical about things. We must accept reality and use reason to organize everything in society. Some argue that we are heading towards a fully rational society in which we become more like robots, which is the extreme of rationality of 2 plus 2 equals 4. This was precisely what Dostoevsky was warning us against 150 years ago. To understand Dostoevsky philosophy, watch this video. Thank you for watching. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.